welcome to discussions of music, healing, and consciousness with your hosts, Chris Noble and Bill Protzman. On this podcast, Chris and I offer a spontaneous, ongoing conversation about how music is intertwined with healing and consciousness. Our first season helped lay the foundation and build some of the superstructure for what we want to do here in Season 2, where we'll be welcoming some intriguing guests, going deeper into ancient mysteries and wisdom, and cultivating your background knowledge and curiosity. We hope these discussions will inspire your own study and practice of the musical and healing arts, and that your contribution to advancing world consciousness will be satisfying for you and transformative to those around you. Let's get started. Spontaneously, uh, discussions of music, healing, and consciousness. Season three, episode two, right? I think is what we're on. Got it. If everything works out, uh, Bill Protzman, Chris Noble here. We've invited Garrett Daly on board because I've had these fascinating conversations with him, Chris, and and uh, another one today that just led right into this podcast. And I said, "Hey, you want a guest?" And Garrett's like, "Sure." So, so here we are. And um, Garrett, tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get into the good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So um, I live in Austin, Texas, wonderful place. Um, I've been here for about uh, going on a year and a half, I guess, at this point. Um, I am a philosopher. I run an agency called Ion Enterprises, where I I don't normally say this part anymore because I find this is uh, not great for marketing, but business philosophy and design. So my background, I've been in uh, working in with or on startups for about the last 10 years. Um that's been yeah i've raised uh i was raising for a company last year the market kind of went downhill which led me to austin to meet more vcs and get ready for the next thing i was going to work on and in the meantime i've been helping my clients um build brands uh create pitch and sales decks and websites with kind of an emphasis on how do we take their philosophy turn that into a comprehensible story that you can use to connect with people that share your values and are uh, inspired by your mission and vision so when you said Ion, that's A-I-O-N. Yes, I think I'm the only person that pronounces it that way, but uh, the A is silent for philosophical reasons. Perfect. And that's where we want to go, right? Because just a little bit ago, we were talking, and uh, and Garrett, so Chris, you're going to be blown away by this. Garrett has a theory of everything. And it's pretty solid based on what I've read so far and my own personal sort of biases about my current understanding, right? Um, can we start there, man? Sure. Let's do it. A equals I equals O. Yes. So technically it's more of a proportion than an equation, but, uh, the basic premise, A equals I equals O, where A is a point at the beginning of a span of time. O is the point at the end of a span of time. And I is a proportion between A and O where the beginning of a span of time is the highest amount of potential energy. The end of a span of time is the lowest amount of potential energy, but the highest amount of information. So my basic premise is that as time progresses, potential energy is converted in, into information, and it does so by consciousness. So I basically, if, if this premise is correct, consciousness is the fundamental property by which things occur in the universe. It's you know, there are external things that gradually get internalized into information. And so the easiest way, I didn't explain this earlier, but the, the easiest but not easy way that I will try to explain this is imagine we're playing the game Yahtzee, right? You have a universe where the only things that exist are five six-sided die. At the beginning of time, all five dice are in the air. 
And there are only five moments in this universe, or six if you count, they're all in the air, right? Yeah, the, the toss at up. each one, one die will land. And at the end, all of them are landed. So if you had to guess while the dice in the, are in the air, what the end combination of numbers is, your odds are something like 100,000 to one that you're going to be correct, right? And to, I'll spare you the process of playing the game out because I forget all the math for this, but the catch is that your goal is to guess what the end state of numbers is, right? It's at the beginning of time, it's a 100,000 to one. But every time a die lands, your odds improve, uh, improve dramatically. Yeah, we gained something from things happening. There's something we get out of energy being expended, which is now the first die is a five, right? So now you're guessing a number that's one sixth the size. If we get to that four dice are on the ground, it's five, four, three, two, right? Your odds of guessing the end state are not just one in six, but regardless of what you guess, you're already like 90% right, which is interesting. So gaining information from the past allows us to make increasingly good predictions about the future, right? So something is happening there that isn't just explained by, you know, the traditional example of entropy, which is you burn a match, the energy expended by the match does not give you the ability to put a match back together from smoke and, and you know, ash. But it does give you the ability to make matches when the first time there anyone saw fire, it was lightning hitting a tree, right? You think about how much information goes into making a lighter when it would take, you know, you, you probably saw fire for a hundred thousand years. There's just like lightning would occasionally hit a tree. It's on fire. You would freak out about it. Somebody eventually got close enough and got burned by it. So then 10,000 more years and nobody touches it. And eventually somebody like gets it. They're like, Oh, it's kind of warm. And they keep a fire and maybe the fire goes out. And then they keep the fire and everyone's like their job. There's somebody's job is just keeping the fire lit. And this is for thousands of years. And eventually they figure out how to light the fire because they saw some sparks off of like a piece of flint on a rock. And they're like, oh, it's like the fire, right? All this slow process of gaining information, your odds are going from like 100,001 to whatever, um, 16,000. Yeah, less. Yeah. So we gain something from energy being expended. And I think that's the basic premise of that. And I think this counters the prevailing scientific notion. I, not, I wouldn't say mo like necessarily all scientists think this or anything, but the common premise is like there's a big bang and there's the entropic heat death of the universe. I think that's only half the puzzle because you have something created from nothing that then returns to nothing. It just doesn't even make it, uh, you know, like thermodynamic sense. What I think is at the beginning of a span of time, you have a white hole, which is um, for people who are not super familiar with astrophysics, it's like space time is expanding faster than you could approach it. So if you were going at the speed of light, approaching a white hole, you could never get there. Like the red queen, right? You're running and not moving because uh, you can simulate this at home. If you have a sink with flat um, surface under it, if you have the sink go down under a flat surface and you put your hands outside of the water coming out and try to push water towards the middle, it will never get there because the flow of water is expanding faster than the rate that you can push water towards the middle, right? So you can imagine that with space-time, a black hole is the opposite of this. Space-time is contracting faster than light can escape. It would make good sense to me that these are just two different sides of the faucet, right? Like, it's just a giant recycling machine. And you can imagine then that time is nonlinear. So out of a white hole singularity, 
there's you could have tons of black holes that emerge. And so now you have these weird paths of time and things are being recircled into are uh, recycled into different places. And when you look at a lot of esoteric sources like um like Indra's net in uh Hindu cosmology, um, this idea that everything's interconnected starts to like click because you can see these weird esoteric descriptions of stuff really approximate a lot of quantum physics. I'm not saying they specifically knew that or anything. I think it's a lower, like a, a more symbolic understanding of something that's fundamentally true. But like Einstein figured out re relativity because he was into Spinoza. You know, Spinoza was a, a pantheist and uh, like it's all relative uh, thinking. It was, he just happened to be a couple hundred years early. But like it's all in there. It all seems to, to make sense in some weird way. Is that a good explanation? Does that make sense? Yeah, that's working for me. Okay. That's awesome. <clears throat> it's so interesting. I'm glad you touched on the time not being linear because that's that was going to be my question. Like, well, what about the cyclical nature of time or the nonlinear nature of time, and and how does that play with this? But then the way you described it, it's like you're creating almost like a loop, like a circle in that white hole black hole um, situation. It's, it's like a donut revolving in on itself. It's yeah, a a span of time would be like that, right? There's uh, there's a guy who I've spoke to. At, a few times uh, whose name is Howard Bloom who has a thing called the Howard Bloom Institute. You, you guys would really like him. Uh, he was Michael Jackson's producer as well as many, like he's one of the best publicists. Uh, he's one of the biggest publicists in like seventies, eighties. Um, but he has, um, he got struck down with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. So he's like bedridden for a decade. He's also happens to be like a philosophical scientific thinker. So he's like seven or eight books that he's written that are like, like, tomes right and he has uh his thing is called the big bagel theory which is uh the bloom tor toroidal model of the universe which is much to that effect which is how we got connected originally is uh, my buddy was doing some work for him and then we had a conversation about this but the same premise is that the universe is expanding out and then collapsing back in on itself in a yeah. perfect kind of loop i tend to think you could, I, I don't, this is all speculation at this point. Cause once you start talking about anything beyond the beginning or the end of time, there's no way of knowing definite, like consciousness exists within time. Yeah. Uh, at least in our model of consciousness that we experience, maybe if you take a bunch of uh, mushrooms and you like escape time, you're having a different experience of that, but it's non-temporal. Right. Um, but at any rate, the, you can imagine different dimensions of universes that could exist. So, the standard physics, let's call this a zeroth dimension universe, is like it starts, it dies, it, nothing else is there, right? Which doesn't make sense. A one-dimensional universe is time goes in a line and it loops back into itself, right? There's no change. It's just like um, Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. Um, you can imagine a universe that gives birth to a novel form of universe, right? So it's like here's a line, but this creates a new one, and there's like doop, 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 doop onwards. You can imagine a degree higher than that where you have a chain of universes that produce novelty that somehow circles back into itself in a big loop. And then you can imagine what I tend to think is the case is imagine a ball of yarn. It's like the Gordian knot, but you can pull strings out of it. And there's like no clear beginning or ending. If you imagine like step out of time in your head, so all of the past, all the future, the present are all condensed down into a single point. Pretend that's a ball of yarn. And if you pull a string of yarn out, there's it, it reconnects to the to the ball. I think our lives are a lot like those threads. And it's time's relative. And I think time is relative to the observer. So we're the focal point for things occurring. 
when you're born, the universe is born. When you die, the universe dies because you're just going back into this like singularity outside of time. And if you think about literally what is a white hole and a black hole, there's a singularity on either side of it. Just one of them spinning things out and one of them sucking them in. And it just goes back to that. Everything's in one little spot outside of time. And it just starts over again, right? So that's that tends to be how I think about it is... And again, this is all like this is all kind of like metaphorical language, speculative language, because there's no possible way of knowing this definitively until you're dead, and then you can find out what's going on. And it, well, you probably don't know. Right? Or you can, you know, the near death experiences, you know, and and I've had a couple of psychedelic near death experiences myself, and have kind of gone into the realms beyond time, and it's very clear that that uh, personally from my experience of that, like that is kind of the home base, so to speak, like that's where our consciousness is feels the most at home. And mm-hmm. I have to wonder, is this physical reality, this experience that, you know, consciousness wanted to create to experience itself um, in all these ways without even knowing, right. We forget that we're even, part of the same consciousness and come from the same source of creation, that singularity, like you're mentioning. And so what I'm curious to hear Garrett, like what are your thoughts on that other side? I know we said it's all speculation. We can't possibly know, but I'd be curious. I'm, I know you sure you got thoughts on it. Like what is your idea? What is that other side beyond time? The home of consciousness, so to speak. I, yeah, I would say this is again, speculation. I've done, I would not make declarative statements about any of this. I this, these are my <laughs> Thoughts. These are not even theories. These you it just were these curious. Yeah, there's no yeah, one yeah. alive who can hold you to it. So it does, <laughs> it, it, I know, perfect. right? <laughs> I think um, the, the question that this, there's a really good article called "The Egg," and there's another. Um, it's like a short story. It's called "The Egg," where the premise is like, turns out you're dead, and then you're talking to God, and God's like, "Oh, everybody's you." Right. And then he's like, oh, well, tell me more about it. It's like, now you're going back. This time you're a Chinese girl in, in like 1400. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, so I thought about, I read that when I was younger and I was like, oh, something about that kind of rings true. I also wondered like how you square, because half of the world is like, you have one, one life, one soul, and half the world's like reincarnation's a thing. And I tend to find like my general hypothesis is that if you find like black and white dichotomies, that probably you're asking the wrong question, which if you ever read, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. That's his his premise is if you get a um, um, paradoxical question, it's a moo question. It means like a non-question. So ask a different question. So it's like, okay, well, how could you have an individual soul and reincarnation at the same time? Right? And so what I think, the way that I look at this is whatever the ball of yarn is, which is like, we'll call that like the sum totality of all being is the phrase that I like, or the simple, the, the most... I think the most accurate thing you could say is isness, right? Or that which has the quality of being, consciousness, awareness. Um, let's pretend that's half of the puzzle, right? That's the ball of yarn. Pure, pure conscious energy thing, unmanifest Godhead, whatever. And then on the other side of this, you have um, the flesh, right? You have uh, a body that's very specific. It's absolutely unique. There will never be another one like it. All of the cells have the DNA in it and all that stuff. So you think about like raw, raw being is something like electricity, right? It, if you have a, a phone, I know you can do this now. If I like plug a cable into my phone, and you plug it into your phone. We can like, I can charge my phone with your phone or vice versa. So the body is like a cell phone, right? The, we all may have similar operating systems. Some of us have different ones, uh, but the electricity in it is fungible. 
So if I charge my phone with your phone, my phone does not change by having your electricity, right? And so I like to think that that electricity is spirit, right? We could, or isness is the word I would personally use, but in the context of the spirit is more like straightforward. And then flesh is the phone. It's dead hardware without power in it. The intersection of those two things, I think, is the soul, which is totally unique. But that thing is, it's relative to the body, right? Like you and your experience of ego, of self, of of being unique is temporal. And if you were to step out, like if you've had an out-of-body experience or you have a high high dose psychedelic trip or a near-death experience, there's that thing that happens where you're like, oh yeah, I just forgot I was a person and now I'm just pure consciousness. And that's how I forgot about having a body and feeling things and stuff. And um Joe Bolte Taylor has this uh, had a stroke. She's a neuroanatomist and had a stroke and then it shut down the logical half of her brain and she like couldn't perceive where her body ended and had no sense of self or no sense of time. And she's like pure consciousness. It was like absolute bliss. And then she got resuscitated, came back into her body and she's like in pain. She's like, I'm so tiny and I have to remember these things. And now I'm a person again. It's like, Oh, okay. So I think everyone is that raw isness and everyone becomes themselves by intersecting with flesh. Right. And it's just, I think it's like the vehicle by which things occur, right? Flesh is temporal. Like the, the, the experience that we have is fundamentally temporal. Like things happen. There's causality, there's linear time. Outside of that, you have like raw consciousness. And I would, the, the way that I like to think about this is like, if you were God, what would you do? Right. You do whatever you want. Okay. You did it right. You have infinite time and power and everything happens as soon as you want it. You just did all the stuff in, in as much time as you wanted to take. And now you still have infinite time and stuff to do, which sounds like you would get bored, right? Like you did all the stuff. So in the context of that, what's the only way you could get any kind of entertainment is pretend you're not God for a certain amount of time and have things happen, <laughs> right? Because if you're outside of time, nothing happens. There's this no progress. getting biblical, right? Maybe, you know, that's the thing. I like, I, I try to caution, like, I have a lot of philosophical things that I have strong opinions about. I would say, like, if you talk, speak about this from a theological perspective, I'm very cautious to say any theological opinions because I think it's, that's a dangerous game to play, right? And if you look like somebody that's read a lot of um, sacred texts, biblical scholarship, uh, you, you see that over time, even, I, I think probably most religions started out and whoever started them was probably pretty close to right. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily include like random cults or hippie stuff. But um, but what happens is that like the, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao or the Tao. Um, so when you name these things and you attach words to it, the word, while if I, God willing, know what I'm talking about or am anywhere close to it, the person who hears me may have a different association with those words and then we'll piece together something wrong because they're getting it secondhand instead of trying to like find what's going on themselves. Right. So amen. somebody has a phrase to the effect of um, seek the seeker. Or don't seek the seeker, seek what he sought. Right. Or there's a, there's a Zen story about there's a monk and a student on the beach at night and the monk's pointing at, or this, the teacher's pointing at the moon and the monk is looking at his finger. Right. He's like missing the point. This the sign is not the signified or something to that effect, right? So, um, I yeah, I would not, I would not like 
preach theology or anything like that. I think, you know, whatever your road is, go to, go do that. Go, go see, like move towards whatever you think divinity is and just do that. And if you just do that earnestly, you will figure it out. And if you try to get it from someone else, you know, um, another Zen, uh, phrase is, uh, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him, which means if you are trying to reach the Buddha, you're not trying to reach for the Buddha's after. Now the Buddha is an obstacle for you to continue forward. So you have to let go of your attachment to this thing that you're trying to get that is not the thing that you actually want, which is enlightenment or God or or what self-realization, whatever you want to call it. So that's like, I think that's the point, you know? So whatever I say, it's all, I'm speculating, it's all theories and stuff. But the point should be like, go think about what you think is going on and self-reflect and feel your way into reality. You can't get there thinking about it, right? I'm, I'm acutely aware of that now. I spent all these years doing philosophy and I don't feel in my body as much. So I'm just focused a lot less on thinking and a lot more on like breath work and feeling your feelings and being present in the moment. Cause I think it's more important than knowing any of this stuff. So that's you know? exactly why this is such a relevant conversation because Chris and I are acolytes <laughs> of the potential understanding that we have ways to experience God experiencing us mm. or consciousness experiencing us and that music and breath and those these are vehicles for getting us there provided we don't get all stuck on the uh, you know stuck on the band or the, you know get all involved in the personality of it and just stay with the experience of it mm. It's also um, reminds me of <clears throat> some of the work I'll, I'm doing with these men's workshops now I'm a part of. And one of the things uh, my co-facilitator and we talk about is like, we got to get out of our heads. You know, we're in our heads all the time. We got to get back into our bodies because there's so many things. Not only is that just a healthier way to be and a lot less stressful and, and will help a lot with anxiety and things like that. But also we have a body intelligence, you know, our intelligence does not just lie in the brain yeah, it's not all up here no we even have a brain in our heart we know this now already just from pure observation and through science but i personally believe we have brains throughout our entire like in our probably in our organs our glands you know the ancients uh, were very uh, aware of the glandular system and how it relates to so many aspects of our being energetically spiritually physically so there's so many parts of our bodies like you said you know garrett we have these incredible machines these these phones these smartphones with an amazing operating system but it's like we're given the phone and, and we really have no idea how to even operate it it's like i gave it to my grandmother and i she doesn't really know what to do with it so much you know she's got the right intention but she doesn't know how to operate it. and i feel like that's where we're at now and it's interesting that you even felt that that pull to like okay I, i've been a lot in the cerebral i've been a lot in the head Let's bring it into the body through these these awesome practices because as a species, especially the last hundred years or so, we've been really primarily living in our minds, which it's a great tool, but it's de it's definitely not the only way. And, and it is, a, a, a I believe, a road to um, a stressful and anxiety-provoking life if you're only living in your mind. Yeah, I would, I would go so far as to say that that is the central um, issue that has plagued philosophy for, A, the last 400 years as well as since Socrates. Um, I'm gonna try, I'll try to give you the close notes on this. This one, this is a common rant that I go on, but. Um, <laughs> I love it. 
it, before Socrates, you had these guys called the sophists and the sophists. Now that word remains with us as an insult, um, which is ironically the same root word as philosophy. You know, so- Sophia's wisdom, uh, the sophists that was just wisdomists. Something is probably how you translate that. Um, all, another note that everyone should know, all the Greek philosophers are like jacked, right? They're super embodied. Um, Socrates was a general. Plato means broad. He was a wrestler. He was like, like, like um, Macho Man Randy Savage is a more simple, like an easier way to think about Plato than like um, an old beardy philosophy guy, right? He said he would settle arguments by flexing because he was so jacked, right? Which is why he's wrong about stuff. That was always my theory, but at any rate, so Socrates really liked to argue with people and the sophists were not that good at arguing, but what they did that was really cool that we screwed up is the sophists got paid to teach philosophy to rich and powerful people. And if you think who needs philosophy the most, it's rich and powerful people. You don't like you teach normal people. Normal people mostly will be good if you just kind of like let them do their thing, right? Rich and powerful people, on the other hand, will mostly be bad if you let them do their thing. So that was a great idea. Socrates would go argue with them publicly. And what is introduced with this is the idea that winning an argument and being right are synonymous, which they are not. They're, um, who's, who's like a famous debating kind of person, like a Ben Shapiro style character. Who's like very good at aggressive debate. That doesn't mean you're right at the end of the discussion. Right. But if you can trap people in these like, um, like tricky ways of saying things, it looks like you're right in front of a crowd. So Socrates was doing that. The sophists most importantly were non-dual. So Socrates, in opposition to the sophists, more or less introduced duality into the Western psyche. And that comes through in the form of Plato and Aristotle, Plato being um, a um, idealist, right? Platonic idealism is like um, the, the Plato's cave and this idea of the forms. And there's like a transcendent reality outside of reality and real reality is an illusion. This is the matrix. It's just Plato's cave with, with Hinduism thrown in and some bullets. Um, and Aristotle was like one of the OG scientists. He was like looking at cataloging bugs and plants and stuff like that. And Platonism got somehow picked up by the esotericists. Aristotelianism got picked up by like the Catholic church, which is bizarre. Because you would imagine that the religious institutions would lead towards this would have been the other way. thing. But in fact, they became very materialist, which begins to set the stage for the enlightenment. In the enlightenment, we made the deal with the devil where we said that the only way that we can get knowledge is through um, tangible stuff, veritas, Roman truth, right? Verifiable facts. And the Gnostic truth of like Plato, um, it became verboten. And Gnostic truth, uh, experiential truth, subjective truth, is where we have things like emotions and feelings and subjectivity. So 400 years uh, basing on that idea, like I think therefore I am, which is totally wrong and misguided. You were, and then you started thinking, right? You are. And thinking occurs. Is this something you could say that's probably more accurate? But what this this hyper, I'll, I'll say hyper masculine in the sense that it's like the like um, structured rational order thought is a masculine concept. But it's not hyper masculine in the sense of you imagine like a very like developed man. It's like a prioritizing the wrong side of stuff. That is the essence of the West. The West is this hyper masculine, hyper ordered almost autistic style of thought. Everything's categorized and broken into parts and atomized. And even the scientific method is really good at like analyzing tiny parts. We controlled all the variables. We're going to examine this one thing, but we can't look at the whole without just speculating. Right. And so that, you know, that tendency towards obsessive order 
has pushed everyone into this really screwed up sort of uh, relationship with the world where you can imagine if you're a Viking in 900 AD and you're like, it's raining, you know, and there's thunder and lightning. And you're like, ah, Thor is fighting frost giants or hitting his anvil with his hammer. There's an emotional and ex explanatory concept for what's going on in the world that we are now lost to, right? Whereas now you say, ah, it's the water cycle. There's no meaning there. There's no emotion in the objectivity, right? If you, if you do a really good scientific study, you're you don't get conclusions out of that. The interpretation is always done subjectively. You know that if I control for X, then Y happens. What does that mean? It doesn't tell you what it means, right? Meaning comes from, meaning is Gnostic, meaning subjective, it's emotional, right? And we demonize these, these subjective ways of knowing, which consequentially means that we demonize the feminine, right? And this is feminine in the broad sense, as well as women in the material, but like people are both, people have both elements in them. So we demonize the feminine in men, and men become either these broken shells of dudes, or they become these hyper-masculine, hyper-aggressive broken shells of dudes, right? And then women become hyper-masculine in the sense it's like this uh, extreme career orientation, trying to compete with uh, men and traditionally masculine things. But also, now they can't tap into their feminine because it's all demonized. And so, everybody ends up worse off. Ironically, women are better at dealing with this problem than men are, because the, you know, the workforce is largely women now. The people that graduate college are largely women. These women get stronger and they hurt inside, whereas men get weaker and they are, become like this visibly broken people. You like think about incels or, or school shooters or people like that, where they're just like, they can't function in the world. And so where I think this all comes back is simply that that returning to the body, which is fundamentally dealing with the feminine, right? If you think about like the traditional model of spirit is masculine, uh, flesh is feminine, right? Um, or you could say air is masculine, um, earth is feminine, right? Like uh, Pachi, uh, Pachikama, Pachimama, like the sky father, earth mother kind of concept. Um, and that, that recurs everywhere. Like Helios, the sun, the sun is masculine, the moon is feminine. Um, all of these kind of like universal concepts relate to that. And we became so full of air, of mind, that we're, you know, we're not in touch, we're not grounded, we're not in touch with the earth, literally, like you think of the metaphors even lead to that. So all this to say, I, in years and years and years of thinking about stuff, I realized, like, I thought about all this stuff, and there's nowhere you can go there, you can't think yourself out of the thinking pit, you just think yourself deeper into the thinking pit. But as soon as you start feeling your way out of the pit, you're not in the pit anymore, right? There's no pit. So it's like, okay, this is now we're on to something, right? This is this is a puzzle. So how do you and you can't solve the puzzle by thinking about it. So it's a tricky puzzle because as soon as you start thinking, you're trapped in the puzzle again, right? So that's I, I've spent like the last month, um, which is ultimately how Bill and I got connected. But uh, just talking to a bunch of different coaches, breathwork coaches. Um, you know, I have a personal trainer now who's like very meditative guy, and trying to figure out how to get out of my head because. It's just, it, it leads to the entropic heat death of the universe is like just cold, dead material mind stuff. Just, you don't, you can't feel the spirit in being, you can't be present when you're thinking. Right. I love that. Yeah. That's, I, I can just relate on a lot of that Garrett, you know, it's, it's so true. And I've noticed that a lot of, for my life is just the imbalance of masculine and feminine and 
how we're talking energy. We're not talking gender specifically, obviously, like you said, it really is an energy, you know, it's left brain versus right brain, you know, right brain, feminine, left brain, masculine. Um, and we're moving now. Sometimes people, I think, would sometimes think for the, the solution is then to go full in the feminine, but obviously that's not the case either. We want balance. We want to come to a, a balanced place with, with both of those energies. And one of the things for me that's personally helped me get, I, I used to be also, funny enough, in a bit of the tech startup world back here in Canada in Toronto uh, in my 20s, and I was doing film production and I was heavy into that very stressful, fun and exciting, but stressful um, scene of this entrepreneurial startup world. And oh my God, like I burnt out so many times so hard from that and was forced to start to look into some of these more feminine practices like meditation, breath work, etc. And what that led me into is understanding more about this other way of perceiving information, which is the more feminine way. And I'll call that intuition. Mm-hmm. And with intuition, that's kind of like the body intelligence or the non-physical intelligence the way that i this is my own interpretation of of intuition is just is how we can perceive energy or information energy maybe it's the same thing um through our different parts of ourself because some people will everyone kind of perceives intuition differently uh uniquely so and that's another thing i've also had to learn was my way of perceiving this type of information is going to be different so i was curious garrett you know have you had any brush up with intuition have you had experience with that or is that something you're opening up to more now like have you how how have you felt with let's say in the depths of a breath work you know exercise at that end state where you're very euphoric and you've got maybe feelings let's say of connectivity or something going on like have you felt any sense of intuition yeah the interesting part um i would distinguish between um so if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs at all, uh, it's based on Carl Jung's theories, and he uh, argues there are four fundamental cognitive functions, which are thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuition. So I would distinguish between, uh, like, I'm naturally an intuitive person as far as, like, I, like I'm an INTJ, so my first thing is introverted intuition. Um, but I would distinguish between, like, the thing that I'm bad at is the sensing, right? And so you could say there's a difference between head intuition and, like, gut which I think those kind of work in a similar way as in they're not logic, they're not rational functions. Um, but for me, intuition, intuition as opposed to gut is like when I'm th- like a, how a lot of this stuff popped in my head is I read tons of stuff and then I would just like have a splash of insight, but it's a cognitive experience, right? Versus my gut, which I'm not as good at listening to where I've met people in the past and my gut will be like, Oh, something's off. And I would ignore that. And then like three years later, you're like doing business with this person. You find out they're like crazy or something like that. You know what I mean? And you, you knew, you knew the whole time you didn't listen to your gut. So where I would say like that, the sensing side of stuff is so foreign to me, right? As somebody that like, I was a a nerdy kid who lived lived in his head forever. Um, being able to like feel feelings and stuff that is like, that's like, I, you know, I feel I was explaining this to someone. It's like you think you're good at life and you think you know all this stuff, and then you discover, hey, there's this other part of life, and you're like a toddler here, but not like a real toddler, because a real toddler is actually really good at sensing and being embodied, right? You're like the the mental equivalent of a toddler at, at this task. <laughs> and for the embodied stuff, for me, it's like, oh my God, like you know, we the first time I did the somatic breath work, um, 
they I've done guided meditations and stuff like that before. And they're always like, feel what your body's feeling. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> what, yeah. what am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to think about? It's like, you're not supposed to be doing or thinking you're supposed to be feeling right. So I've only been doing the somatic stuff, which I think is, seems to be superior. I did like Zazen for a long time and that, um, and like some Kundalini meditation, which is pretty cool. But I find Zazen is very intellectual in the sense of like, you're just focusing on the breathing. You're not thinking thoughts. It's that's, it's the experience of emptiness. I got good at that, but the feeling stuff is totally different because then it's like, Oh, what am I supposed to do? Right. And I will say in the, the month or so that I've been doing this, um, I've had some interesting experiences. I've gotten this, um, experience of like your whole body's tingling. Um, and the first time I got that, it was very positive. It was like, Oh, it was amazing. It's like, what I imagine smoking crack is like, you know what I mean? It was just like, it feels great. You know, I was just like, Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And I started thinking about it and it kind of kicked out. Um, then I had one where my hands were tingling and it was like, I was told this is called lobster claws and it's a thing. I just had my hands, my hands felt very weak and like this. And that was weird. Right. And then the next time I had just my feet from the knees down, it was pretty neutral. This last weekend I went to a breathwork and brunch hosted by Jake Wan, um, who lives here in Austin. He's a cool dude. And I had this experience of like the full body tingling thing, like the, the whole, the whole one, but I could tell there's like, there's like a wall. And on the other side of that wall was a lot of pain, right? There's a lot of emotional pain. And I think what my theory is, I'm reading body keeps score right now. And the premise is that we get kicked out of our bodies because we have some emotional thing that we haven't processed. And as a person that is very naturally unemotional and lives in my head. I guess I have a whole built up store of this stuff that I need to deal with. And so for that, it was like, okay, cool. I know this is here. That was what I was looking for. I'm not doing this today, but it's nice to know that's there. Um, and I'm going to work up to dealing with that. But that was, that was where it started to click for me. It was like, ah, the really cool part though, is when I ran into that wall, then I could see this pattern in my head of thoughts that I had. That was the default. Oh, I'm about to feel emotional pain. Do this. And then, he, and then as soon as I started thinking again, my entire body just went dead, right? It was just turned off. And I was like done meditating. And we had like 30 more minutes. So I was like, I'm just chilling. I'm not, I'm, I got, I made some progress. That was enough. But seeing that mechanism by which being in your head turns the body off, like seeing that so clearly, I thought was profound. And the realization that if that's the way that it works, then be, when we're in our heads, we're shutting ourselves out from that direct experience of emotion, which is an embodied sensation. And that's the way we protect ourselves. It's like that everything in the book, which I've just been reading, you know, theoretically for a month has like clicked. And you can see where this starts to make sense in the context of the world that we live in, because all of the philosophy, especially the last 400 years has become increasingly theoretical and abstract and academic and thinky because they're not dealing with that stuff. And then you look at the philosophers, it's like Kant died alone, Schopenhauer died alone, Nietzsche died alone and insane, right? He got hit with all the emotions. He couldn't deal with it. And he went crazy for a couple of years and started writing letters as Dionysus or Jesus or a bunch of other personas that he adopted. He's batshit, right? And then you get it. You see why it's like this because you have all the people don't have the the mental or cultural or social faculties to deal with these feelings. And then they build up and then you go nuts and you can't be satisfied with life because life satisfaction doesn't come from thinking about it. Look at Jeff Bezos, right? You end up being the one of the richest guys in the world and you have a wife who loves you 
and you cheat on her with some like trophy wife person, like, because you're still not satisfied. You had everything you ever possibly could have wanted because you thought your way through, you weren't allowing yourself to feel it. Right. And I just think that's so tragic. And so I don't side, end up sidebar here because uh, I've been working with post-traumatic stress veterans for a long time with music. Mm. And in that space, you kind of like, you understand the research that's happening. So, and it would be post-traumatic stress disorder research. The psychologists and the researchers in that field are learning that trauma is a doorway, not a wall. The wall that you're talking about in your guided meditation is the wall that a veteran who's traumatized has to break through, that anybody carrying post-traumatic stress has to break through. And um, not only do we have all these modalities now for people who don't want to break through that wall but want to feel good anyway, mm. right? Uh, but the very few who use the modality to break through the wall are discovering, and research is su su supporting this, including folks like Bessel van der Kolk and Body Keeps the Score, that um, it's not post-traumatic stress disorder at all. It's post-traumatic growth, PTG. And they have this name for it that is informed by everything that is not thought, right? It's not a thinky thing. It's an experiential. It's an, it's, it's an it's a not head brain. It's below the neck, mm. a process. And uh, this is just a theory of my own now, but I suspect that what they will find is that the body is a processor for trauma and that to grow in this way that we have fought ourselves out of for so long demands that we take all of the trauma that we've accumulated in the last 400 years, collectively and personally, and digest it. Yeah. And that's and the trauma is where the that's where the it's not only where your growth is, but I believe it's also where your path and purpose is, oddly enough. It's the stuff that brings you the most pain and suffering is ironically what you're probably meant to be helping the world with. And now you're in the wisdom literature from Job to <laughs> everyone has has said written I mean in in your own Egyptology kind of stuff. You've just the story of Osiris. I mean, it's, it's, there's so much of this. It's like, hello, people. We've known this stuff for thousands of years. So why are we still chasing the other? Yeah, you know, yeah. So hard to think our way into a solution that doesn't require thought. That's that's the puzzle, right? Because you you try to think yourself out of the thinking pit. You can't do it. It just makes you dig deeper, right? And then you go insane. Somebody, I saw this quote today on Twitter that was like, um, "Wait a minute, not, there's something good on Twitter." Uh, Oh yeah, you gotta follow the right people. Twitter's great. Yeah, for uh, sure. Uh, the uh, there's a quote to the effect. I'm gonna paraphrase this bad, but um, if some to the effect of it's not it's not emotions that drive people insane, it's rationality that drives people insane. Because nobody like poet like poets don't go crazy, but the poets that go crazy go crazy because of the rationality because they're trying to think their way through this stuff. Like Poe, right? Poe has had a rational streak. And that's why he's all morbid and depressed and stuff. Whereas you look at somebody like um, uh, the Irishman, um, John O'Donohue, David White, um, yeah. but turning, you're turning about the, the winding gyre, the Falcon cannot hear the Falconer. Yeah, the ancient guy. He's not ancient. No, um, I, I know. Um, dang. Okay, I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes. So people you're uh, listening yeah, will yeah. find this poet. It's Keats? One of the belly? It's one of, like Keats, that era. Keats or right? Yates. It's Keats or Yates. I always get him confused. Yeah. I think it might be Yates. Also. Yeah, is it turning and turning in the winding jar? The falcon cannot hear the falconer and mirror something is loose upon the world. Uh, yeah, oh, it's so I'll good. find it. 
and the beast slumbers to Bethlehem to be born or something like that, or it slouches to Bethlehem to be born. Um, there's anyway. Um, yeah, like that. I don't know. You see, when you see like great poetry, it's because you're tapping into this thing and it, great poetry predicts future. Like if you, uh, paradise lost predicted the enlightenment by a hundred years, right? Moby Dick predicted the death of God by a hundred years. Um, I mean, HG Wells, come on. Like, yeah, yeah look, predicted Isaac everything. Asimov, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, like yeah. people, man, they were a hundred years ahead. So that begs the question, then why, what is it about the emotional mind that knows stuff a hundred years first? It's because our bodies can perceive things that we cannot rationalize yet, which then is also, okay, potential energy is being expended. The body is processing it and then converting it up into information, right? So I think the point to, to the point that you made is as we're experiencing this stuff, the point is not that we're supposed to be absolutely, totally hundred percent present all the time. Because if you look at um, the, you know, the stroke lady yeah she had taylor. this experience she, yeah joe bolte taylor she couldn't like use her phone or function at all and her body's like failing her right but she was absolutely pre- present having this bliss experience like if you this the idea like you look at god you die or or like you can't look at god unless you're dead is like the absolute experience of presence is being outside of time right like to wit to witness pure divinity is you're no longer you no longer exist <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. so Ideally, I mean, back to the hero's journey, if you're straddling that place where you've got one foot in the river and one foot out, you're master of two worlds. Like you want to be balanced in that because the rational mind, sometimes we have to do things that are not emotionally satisfying, right? Sometimes we have to like have tough love or like, um, you know, like not let strangers into our house or Or vote, (laughs) vote, yeah, or vote (laughs) (laughs) or engage with the political process in any way whatsoever. In any way at all. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why I use that, the least common. <laughs> yeah, that that whole that whole thing, I think, is the point. Is balance. Right yeah. now, we've neglected half of it. it ironically, has neglected the whole because that half is so critical to making the other half work. Yeah. And so we're just so out of touch, and we just have so little concept of like what living well looks like. We treat we're so it, disconnected. Yeah, ourselves and each other and yeah. the planet, just all around disconnected, unplugged. Yeah, and it's like. Look, you know, I don't know. You ever look at like a Frank Lloyd Wright house where it's like, oh, he was definitely, he definitely got it. Where he's like building out of natural materials that came from yeah. the environment. And the houses look like they belong there. They're also super comfy. If you've ever been in one, it like, just feels good to be in there. Like the like fun shui is really yeah. good too, right? Like the energy of the place feels good. That's what I'm saying. Like you can do, you can use the rational mind in harmony with nature because it's part of nature, right? But when you have pure rational mind, you get like brutalism. You get like this awful modernist architecture where it looks completely abnormal and not natural whatsoever like and everything it, in north america <laughs> yeah straight up mm-hmm. like but most most modern developed places now are like that because of reasons but um i i just imagine it's moving in such a way like if you think what is what is the most like utopian possible world that's ever been depicted i think it's rivendell and lord of the rings yes there we go Amen. there it is because what is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. The elves are obviously magic. Yeah. You have this, it's like in harmony with nature. It's also extraordinarily breathtakingly beautiful. That's what we should be aiming at is how do we make technology invisible? How do we live in total harmony with nature? But also like I love air conditioning, right? I, my house is like 66 degrees. It's, it's still too hot in here. I'm not giving up air conditioning. You know what I mean? I live in the tent before. I'm not going to, I'm not doing it. So how do we get all that stuff to work where it's like, Hey, we have air conditioning, but we're not destroying the rivers and oceans and stuff. Right. We can have the best of both. 
And I think it's just because we prioritize one. We get, hey, we want air conditioning and we want all these other nice amenities at the expense of having clean air or drinkable water or, you know, like a, a biodiverse ecosystem, you know, estuaries and such things. And it's just like, we got to change our target, you know, we got to aim at something different than what we're aiming at. And part of that is like feeling it out. It's like, hey, you're not hyper-rational by default. You're just depressed. You know, you haven't, <laughs> you haven't dealt with it. Like people were mean to you and you'd never thought about it again. You internalize that. Now you hate yourself. And the only way that you can validate yourself is by accumulating stuff or banana, uh, banana stickers, right? Gold stars and other stupid forms of validation. And then you end up like Bezos where you're like, you pick only one person to feel inferior to, which is Elon. And then you just like base your whole life on trying to beat Elon at stuff that wasn't your thing anyway. I don't know. It's like, you don't have to, you don't have to end up like that. Right. We, haven't we learned anything from Larry Ellison and Steve Jobs? You know, here we are again. You know, the thing I'll say about this utopian world, though, is a lot of it, we can look into the past for the answers. You know, I'll go into Egypt as an example, like the Great Pyramid, in my opinion, was a free energy machine and device. And there's so much evidence to support that. And it is still potentially active. And when I was inside of it in 2019, you know, I led a chant with a group there and everyone had their own unique experience, but it was like, uh, otherworldly and all sober, no psychedelics, but it, that building is like a psychedelic. And there's so many uh, things that it does that we don't comp, we still can't comprehend, but Nikola Tesla could comprehend a lot of it and base his Wardenclyffe tower design off of that, you know, in Colorado Springs. And he did create free wireless energy then. And we had that all ready to rock and roll. And then, you know, JP Morgan and lovely elites, you know, do what they do best and crush that. But it's, you know, that is one of the ways that we can live harmoniously with nature is to use nature as the power source. You know, this is a whole other discussion, but I, I really believe like we're sitting on a free energy device, which is this planet, this planet I personally believe is extremely abundant. So Chris, what do you think about Garrett's idea that's based back in uh, ancient Greek, but not quite so ancient, relatively speaking, you know, relative to Egypt, where the rich and powerful wind up supporting the philosophers to help them deploy their richness and power in ways that serve instead of ways that control. Other way around, other way around. We need the rich and powerful to be philosophers. But we also well, yeah, need them to be embodied, right? There That's we go, yeah. Yeah, and you said it, Garrett. So I, I love what you said there because, one, that brilliant, yeah. And I didn't realize that that's what was happening in ancient Greece, which is amazing. And I love what you said, too, is like these guys were jacked and, you know, they were ripped because that's the embodied part is the gymnasium, the original word for gymnast, gymnasium, was a place for philosophy, was a place for you work out and philosophize and you do it all in the nude as well because body shame and all that stuff had was not an issue back then as you could tell by all the statues and you know that was so commonplace was for men to philosophize while exercising and doing these platonic male bonding exercises and non-platonic like the, the whole realm i mean it was way different back then and i think that was one of the the amazing things that came from that was this feeling embodied type of wisdom and knowledge and how do you get that you got to be physical you know it's not like when we go to school what do we sit and get talked at 
Where's the physical integration of that information, you know, whereas newer schools that are coming out now, thankfully are, you know, they have a garden space and they're teaching you how to actually grow your lunch that you then eat later on. And so you're getting to understand the full cycle of what's happening by experience. I think that's what we're moving into. And that's what, that's what's needed. Garrett, I love what you're saying, man. Cause it's like, it's just so bang on. Like we are not embodied. And I think that's one of the biggest things I try to teach or, or, even just show by the way I live my life for, for men and for other, just anyone is to like, you, we got to move, you know, that's why I love to DJ and play music. And I do my ecstatic dances and like dance, like dance therapy events for people to come out consciously, move your body, shake off all these emotions, shake off all the anxiety. Cause like it is in your body. I mean, I can validate that a thousand percent Garrett. Cause that's been my journey, which is, embodiment over the last like seven, eight years for me, it's just been, it's just been, it's been everything. It's been the most important um, shift for myself. And I, and I, and I love how though your intellectual brain explained a lot of that Garrett in a way that I haven't heard in that manner. So I love your intellect for just how you put those, the words together and explained my kind of my journey, but you've done it in such, it's like a, such a cool philosophical ancient Greek kind of style. I love it. <laughs> so, uh, three, three white dudes here. How do we bring the ladies into the room? Um, here's, this is, this is what I kind of think is, uh, about that. So the men, certainly in my experience of being a guy who's not historically great with women, right. Because I'm in my head, right. The the thing I think what you see a lot of, a lot of the information being being given to young guys about how to talk to girls is a bunch of rules and thinky stuff, right? Yeah. Which is de facto not correct. A, uh, you get what is appears as contradictory advice, which is that oh, women love a guy who's in touch with his feelings, which men read as hey, you should like cry in front of girls, but then you learn that doesn't that's not cool. Uh, nobody likes that. What that actually means is being present and embodied, right? And being comfortable and at ease. And when you when you are comfortable and at ease, you give that energy off. And now people aren't intimidated by you. Because if you come up and you're like breathing shallow, you're talking out of your head, you're even if you don't know that you're doing it, you're creeping people out on a subconscious level, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but the road to get to that place where you're embodied, which again, I'm not here yet. I'm in the, in the process of trying to learn this. I think in the process of doing that, you're going to like live in accordance with your purpose and probably get in good shape, probably be working on something you care about and probably have some means to provide for yourself and others. Right. And checking all the basic boxes off and then being comfortable as a person and in tune with your own feelings and emotions, because what happens when you're not is now you're a liability. So uh, fun observation is something that dudes do in all male groups only. This doesn't work in mixed groups is, if you ever worked with a bunch of guys, especially in construction or like physical labor, you shit talk everybody the whole time. And that's the, it's supposed to be like that. Right. Because if you're what I learned the hard way, because like, you know, when I was in high school or, or middle school or stuff and I had been bullied or whatever, you don't learn how you take everything really seriously. And then later I had this job where I was doing, um, it's like site setup for, uh, the special forces, uh, assessment and selection for MARSOC. So it's like, I was not working for Marsuk. I was basically like an overpaid janitor, but it's a bunch of like retired Marines and bikers and like other degenerate dudes. They're good guys, um, but just like rough and tumble dudes. And I remember the first like session that I was there, it's like, we would be that up and live in the barracks for a month. The one, there's this one dude named Joe. He's like a big fat guy with a bunch of tattoos and a nose ring. And 
he's the wittiest human being I ever met, but he's caustic, right? Like he absolutely roasts the shit out of you. And I was like on the verge of tears. So I was so mad. And then it clicked in my head. I was like, oh, you just got to stop caring. Because if I'm being emotionally reactive, they can't trust me. I didn't know that part until way later because I reflected on it. But it's like the ability to let things slide, to not get caught in those feelings makes you trustworthy. And that men in male groups are checking each other to know that they're not getting ego inflation and taking themselves too seriously. So shit talking between guys is a way to make sure that everyone's trustworthy. Right. And if you have friends, like close male friends, you can shit talk each other and you know that you both have each other's best interests at heart. It's a way of checking that. So that same kind of thing, that being ironically, being able to process the emotions adequately, but also remain emotionally unreactive, where, hey, I'm going to have these feelings, they're not going to change how I act, creates comfort for the people around you. And so when men can do things like that, meaning men need to have all male spaces where you can go have these experiences, especially like male motivation, which is like, hey, go like get off your ass, go do that shit. Why aren't you doing it? That's great. You also need this other kind of emotion where it's like, hey, it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay, whatever. But I think that comes more from women, and traditionally at least. And being able to engage with both of these types of emotions, which is like the don't react, go get shit done mode. And also, hey, it's okay to take the time to feel these things creates this kind of person that's emotionally comfortable in such a way that people around you can feel that, which starts to open up to having these mixed spaces where people feel comfortable. Because if you ever like the difference between say a frat party, which is this, uh, you know, like hyper-masculine environment where a lot of times people feel uncomfortable and feel uncomfortable for the right reasons, because it's not a comfortable environment versus like a group meditation where everyone's in a nice headspace and everyone's like welcoming and safe. That's the thing we're missing a lot because we don't have the appropriate breakdown for these kinds of spaces. Like there's a place for all female spaces, which fortunately there's a lot of these now, you know, especially I've worked with um, the branding stuff for a couple like all female mentorship groups, whereas these men's spaces don't really exist a lot. Um, And it's kind of demonized because the impression that women have for probably rightfully so is that, oh, they're being kept out of X, Y, and Z. Whereas when you have those mixed spaces, the dynamic's very different. And you need to have mixed spaces too, obviously. But what you don't have is a place for men to go have the man outlet where you don't have to feel like the women are going to judge me. I, I can feel my feelings. You know, in Austin, especially, I found a lot of these groups where, like last night, we um, there was a bunch of guys over like um, eating meat and smoking cigars, but also just talking about emotions and stuff, which is like, to me, is just profound because it's like that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I think the for men, the idea is like, do the work, feel your feelings. You're going to like reach out. I think um, one of the coaches I'm working with, uh, Brittany Williams is phenomenal. And she said this, and I think she's right, is that men are going to have a better time learning this emotional stuff, working with a woman, because it's something about the male-male relationship is more like rah, rah, do it, like conquer your demons kind of thing. Whereas the male-female relationship with the stuff is like, there's a certain kind of um, non-judgmental feminine um emotional resonance that you that men are starved of and the normal experience of men is that if you have this um if you try to have this emotional resonance with women especially in a mixed space or something where there's a lot of status games and stuff going on then you immediately feel judged and if you try to express yourself emotionally you don't have to learn that twice you're like you're done 
you know, you're not going to try again. You'll, you learn that young and then you never do it. And then you build this shit up for years and years and years. So the men have, have a job to do for themselves, which is a go get physical, do the hard stuff, uh, you know, find other guys that you can have support you and talk through a lot of the stuff in a logical way with them. Cause that's the man talking about stuff is a lot of just like this happened because of this and this happened because of that and X, Y, Z don't do this, do, do this again. Right. Whereas the experience of doing the work in the feminine way is like, how does that feel? Right. And then just feeling it. And you're probably not going to get that from guys. Cause I don't think most guys are good at this. Right. So you got to do kind of both of these things. And if we can get guys moving in that direction, I think everything else will start writing itself because that, that comfort that comes from a guy that is comfortable. I don't want to like people, people use the word confident. And I think that sounds like something else, but like that inner ease of a person that's comfortable with their feelings and comfortable in situations. Cause they have like an internal sense of security that comes from having done the work that when that radiates out, everything else starts to get fixed because you're setting the example and you're demonstrating what good looks like. So I think it's just, especially if there are young guys listening to this, the sooner you start moving towards that, the better your life is going to be. Yeah. And you, that, that's your, that's your job. Everything else will sort itself out. You can figure out what you're doing for work, right? You'll figure that out, but just start doing this. Cause nobody's going to tell you to do this. And it took me like 10 years of doing philosophy to, to even start running into this because I had exhausted the the thinking. Right. And got nowhere with that. Yeah. I love, and I'll just add to that Garrett. Cause I, you're touching on something that for me has been something that's happened very naturally in my life. And I'm really grateful, but I realized it's, I'm kind of an anomaly and I, and I recognize that. And it's, it's so I've been very fortunate for many years to have like an equal parts, female friends as, as male friends. Mm. And that doesn't sound crazy, right? But it, but it actually is a ratio that doesn't exist for a lot of men, I find, especially, you know, if you identify as straight or anything in that ballpark. And so for myself, I've benefited so much over the years from my own emotional and embodiment development because I've had all these amazing feminine um, and female friends to lean on because they do get emotion and they understand in such a deep way that it's just like the, some of the most soothing and like lovely conversations are with these uh, amazing women that of course you still you, you, like any human being you want to connect with on some level of like, there's someone that you can just talk to easily, but you know, those are really important friendships to start thinking about developing for those, you know, watching and listening as well. Like it's, it's also really important for men, especially to start developing relationships with women that are not sexual, right? Like that, those are great too, but those are typically the only type of relationship that most men will develop and, and build with a woman. Where's the friendship? Why can't we also have that? And that, then because as you do these embodiment exercises, like you're saying, Garrett, and you're so bang on with it, is that you become more embodied and then you become more at ease and you be also become you start to do things that also help with your sexual energy and to transmute and alchemize that sexual energy from becoming something very lusty, which a lot of women, that's obviously a common complaint, rightfully so, of feeling unsafe around a man because they feel like that creepy, clingy kind of energy from a man. That's that's un that's basically unhealed sexual energy and untransmuted sexual energy that doesn't know where to go. And when you're doing breath work and you're meditating and you're hanging out with really good people that are a good vibration for you and eating good food and reading philosophy and, and go, you know, having these experiences, having a sol solid community, 
that's where you can start to transmute. Those are all things that help transmute that energy and you just become a safer, more easy and, and easier person to be around. And people will gravitate towards that for sure. And then on the flip side, you know, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of men who are in, in touch with their emotions. And you're likely going to meet more of them going to these breathwork events and these meditation events and things like that where like-minded people. When I, I went on these expeditions to like South Africa and Egypt, you know, following my love for alternative history, and I met some lifelong friends there and, and some of the men that I met there who are on these like pilgrimages or whatever you want to call them, like these kind of like we're all seeking truth on these trips and these men were so embodied you know and, and we could talk about our, the depths of our, our traumas and emotions and to be able to do that with men is also super powerful so it's i think kind of one of the common things we've been talking about is balance right in this whole conversation and balance is absolutely what's needed to bring us into this you know i'm very optimistic with the future despite what is shouted out from all mainstream you know uh, tabloids and everything I i'm a firm believer like you said garrett we couldn't have had even guys getting together you know smoking some cigars having meat and talking about their emotions and it's enjoyable and you know like men obviously we crave it we've just been so conditioned for so many centuries that that's a weakness and in fact the irony is that it's a superpower and it's absolutely our power and when we come more into that that's when we're just this amazing unstoppable force you know 100 percent. there's on that note um if i don't think it's actually i don't think the masculine feminine has been screwed up for that long like not in that way because if you watch lord of the rings which i have and sam yeah, everyone should watch the extended edition of the yes. Lord of the Rings. It's like yeah. the best trilogy ever made. Mm -hmm. um, Frodo and Sam, and actually all the guys in that movie, with the exception of the bad guys who are very obvious, have like really healthy friendships. And like Frodo and Sam are super emotionally expressive. Whereas nowadays, yeah. everyone's like, oh, Frodo and Sam are gay. It's like, no, yeah. that's a healthy masculine relationship that's so foreign to us now. And I think a lot of that comes out of Hollywood and mm. there's a lot of weird things that have gone on with that in the last like hundred years. But yeah. That's a great benchmark. Look at Sam, Sam Ganji. If you could be anybody and you just aim to be Sam, Sam's a perfectly normal guy who's like totally perfectly well adjusted. Like that is a absolutely normal, healthy person. Right? He's obviously a hobbit, but you get my point. No, he's, he's the most sane one out of all the hobbits too. Out of all the people, he's like just a normal down to earth guy. Right. And I think that's a good reference point because it's so uncommon or another good, I thought another phenomenal masculine character he's not in the movie for very long but the the um the duke in dune um the dad of of paul in dune i thought he was like the best like embodied present like wholesome masculine character who's also a badass right like they, yeah. they nailed him he's not even, even the book i don't think he's in the book that long but like uh that's just that movie's flawless but that's what those ancient archetypes like the egyptian gods or the greek pantheon of gods like these were these idealistic forms of the masculine and the feminine and what we can become it's like they are the example of what we all have that you know capability of becoming when we're balanced the, the difficulty yeah, I, is uh is the relationship right and recreating that relationship for both men and women although women are going to be better at it because they have certain superpowers that guys have to learn. Yeah. And, and, and being comfortable with the one-on-oneness of that, with the small community of that, the tribe of that, rather than being like, I'm going to change the world because because <laughs> that what, dilutes the opportunity. On that note that you said something really insightful there. Um, 
the thing, the women are naturally better at, at this stuff. Um, but what's the, the point of Dune? Like, and actually you see this in a lot of, um, the really good recent mythology that we've written, like Dune, um, a little bit of Star Wars, they played with it. There's some other things, but the premise of Dune, you have the Bene Gesserit, right? The witches, they're all female, but they're trying to have a male person with the, their freaky magic stuff. And whenever they have the men, they can start learning it, but it kills them, right? But if there's any of them that go through that ceremony that makes them, like, have the magic powers and they survive, that one is, like, he's supposed to be the savior. He's, like, the king of the world. So that, as an archetypal story, is awesome, right? It's the idea is that the the king, the leader, right, the, which is the highest masculine archetype, the king, is the guy who learns the feminine magic and masters it. And this is also in Wheel of Time, right? So I only read the first one. I have, have the second one around here somewhere, and I will not watch the show because they mess this concept up immediately. And this is so central <laughs> to the plot. Um, but the premise of Wheel of Time is you have this recurring hero, and there's an uh, immortal evil, right? And the recurring hero shows up in different eras to fight him, and that's the way that it goes. And he always gets killed, and he just keeps coming back. The last time that the hero showed up, he used, there's the masculine magic and the feminine magic, right? He used the masculine magic and did something wrong, and it permanently corrupted the masculine magic. So now any man who is born with magic goes insane, right? Because they're corrupt, which is like, oh, what does that mean? It's like the masculinity is corrupted, right? We have this corrupted form of it. But the one who is able to fix that is also the hero, right? So you see it's the same exact story that we're telling. And these are newer stories, right? This isn't like an old-timey story. This is the new story where there's some kind of thing to learn in the feminine. And the man who can do that is becomes a complete person. They become the king, right? The kid being the complete person. And so on that note, I'm going to rattle off a list of books for the listeners. If anyone's interested in what we just talked about, Um Obviously, the um, Eye of the World is the first book of Wheel Time. Dune, for nonfiction, uh, King Warrior, Magician, Lover. Um, three books, He, She, and We by Robert Johnson. Awesome. Wheel, All Wheel awesome. Of, they're so good. Uh, you read them in that order, by the way. Uh, but they're tiny, too. They're the three best books of their short length. Um, but Wheel of Time is Robert Johnson. No, Wheel of Time is Robert Jordan. These books are Robert Johnson. So just... Be cognizant of that if you try Googling, because I mess this up every time. And then um, Iron John by Robert Bly, which is a book um, about a myth you've never heard of, where he talks, it's the best individual book about men ever written. It's this myth you've never heard about, the process of becoming a man through a bunch of different stages. It's really great. And um, um, David Data's uh, Way of Superior Man. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I've, data is really present with me right now, Chris. Have you have you guys had a chance to explore that together in group? Uh, oh yeah, my my co facilitator is a huge David Data fan. We bring a lot of his teachings into our workshops. Yeah, big time. He he is. I, I'm so glad he didn't like get shuffled off into oblivion because he was way ahead of the curve on this stuff, and he's really masterful about it. So, I, Garrett, thanks for reminding me. Oh yeah, that's here's a, a good barometer. Um, for young guys who are watching this. So like I, um, I came home or I was seeing my family, uh, last summer and I like walked down into the living room. We were, we were having like a family party or something. And my, my younger male cousin was watching like an Andrew Tate video. And I was, had to tell him, was like, dude, this is not it. You know what I mean? And the thing that uh, a good litmus test that you can tell as a man, if you're 
talking about masculinity, femininity stuff is if you're talking about it in a way that makes women uncomfortable, you do not get it yet. That's, and you can tell when you read David data, they, that he does not creep out women, right? Something about, you could tell he's like fun and he's like a weird hippie guy. He's all into the tantra stuff, but you could tell he's like easy and it's not, there's nothing creepy about it. But there's a lot of the masculinity stuff is written by dudes that you could imagine is are probably going to creep out women or make them feel uncomfortable. That is probably not the person you should be listening to. Robert Bly, who I love dearly, like he had a thing called the mythopoetic men's movement where uh, he's a poet. So when you read like uh, Iron John, he's written a bunch of poems that are in the book. He's using to explain stuff, which is in itself is cool. But in the mythopoetic men's movement, he would take a bunch of older guys and younger guys. So he had the premise that the only way that men become men is to be initiated by older men. And in the absence of older men that initiate younger men, boys will initiate boys and they become frats or gangs or other like maladjusted people because presidential candidates perhaps perhaps and you but you can see that that's a recurring thing is you have to like masculinity um has to be earned it has to be like conferred you have to do something to become masculine whereas femininity is like you're a woman now people are paying attention to you in a way that they weren't before like you have to this is a thing that's been thrust upon you right which is very different. So men, you have to, the man has to be made out of it. Like for the, uh, the father to be born, the son must die or something like that. Or the boy has to be killed. There's a scriptural thing like that. That's where you get the, um, like traditions like bar mitzvahs or the vision quests, you know, in, in native cultures, things like that. That was what Bly did. So he would take, you know, the older guys and the younger guys would go out in the woods and do like man stuff, like chop down trees, start fires. And then they would write poetry and talk about the feelings. And it's like, Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, that's what you can imagine. Think, think about samurais, right? If you, um, I like, I like a lot the, um, King warrior, magician, lover spectrum. I think that is a really good idea of the four masculine archetypes. So you have like, um, philosopher King, which is King magician, right? That's a common phrase in society. We think of a great person would be a philosopher King. But you also have warrior poet, which would be warrior lover. And that is two axes, right? You need to be all four of these. You need to be able to, to like lead and make good decisions and be thoughtful and care about other people, which is king. You need to be able to assert yourself and protect people and, and take action aggressively, which is warrior. You need to be able to be creative and crafty and artsy and, and think of things like Steve Jobs is very much magician energy, magician king, right? And then you need to be able to relate to people and be emotional and stuff and be a poet. That's lover. And so if you look at the four of these, you know, things that balance those out you see people that have these qualities together you know like um sam gamji is in no way a king but he's got warrior in there he's got lover in there uh like he's definitely got that warrior poet thing he's got some king if especially by the end of it you know this guy yeah when he's like destroy the rings you know yeah goes back to his home he's got some kingly energy yeah well you you get that by taking action right like exactly and dealing with your emotions. Cause I, I would say like the default, like you're starting off warrior lover, like aggressive energy and then emotional energy. If you do those things, you start becoming King magician where you get that intuitive knowledge and that like extra external world knowledge or something like that. Mm. Um, but that book's really cool. Cause it goes through the, there's the immature versions of all of those things. Like the hero is, is a lower form of that where you're like trying to seek glory instead of service. And, um, the ways that they get corrupted is so you have like the tyrant or the impotent king instead of like the actual leadership. Um, and then he, he uh, in by uh, Robert 
Johnson, he talks about um like the Fisher King and and um Percival and that that myth of like the impotent king and what happens when the king is impotent, like the land dies and goes to ruin. Um so it, all I so all that stuff's interesting and all the answers are in mythology, right? That's the thing that makes mythology mythology is that it's true on a higher level than facts. And if you're looking for answers to any normal, like all, all human experiences that are not related to specific problems in the modern age, there are answers in mythology or spirituality or uh, old religious texts, esoteric or whatever. Somebody has already had these experiences because they're universal and they wrote much better stories about them than any of us are ever going to come up with. Right. So just read the myths that everything's in there. Plus they're based on like centuries of observation generally. Yeah, they're refined, right? And something it's something cool about that. It's like similar, um, like a tarot deck, right? So I designed um a deck of oracle cards, and in the process, I was I like played with a bunch of tarot decks and read a bunch of books about it and stuff. And the thing, like, I'm not of the opinion that they do like magic or anything like that. Uh, but when you see what like they are, which is hundreds of years of people accumulating symbols together that that evoke universal experiences, you start to understand. It's the same thing mythology does. There are these archetypal universal truths that we all go through at some point in our lives. And if you can learn how to relate to these symbolic approximations of reality, like then your life becomes sacred, right? Because you're experiencing this universal story that repeats and repeats and you just get different parts of it. Like one day you're Icarus, one day you're Prometheus, right? I'll, in, I'll just add in quickly to Garrett. I was like, he brought up the Oracle decks and tarot. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool that you you brought that up. Because again, you know, I've, I've been surrounded by some of these amazing women and some of them are tarot masters. And obviously men do get into that too, but it's mostly a, a female still dominated, you know, um, let's say interest or, or mm. uh, area of, of study. And, but I, I've experienced like wild things and readings from some of these friends of mine through tarot and Oracle where I'm like, my logical brain's at a loss, like no idea where you got that like bang on information, like eerily accurate, you know? And I've had this so many times where I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on, but I know there's something certainly dare I say in the magical realms going on because it's something we don't understand. I mean, that's what magic is, right? It's like phenomenon or maybe not. I mean, this depends on how you believe in magic. If you're coming at it from the traditional, like ancient Egyptian um, origins of magic, uh, practicing magic, or are we talking about like just pop culture magic where it's just describing something we don't understand. Right. Cause Yeah. So I'm curious as to, uh, have you experienced anything in maybe less explainable in it's, that realm? So the, I think symbols are the language of the unconscious and the archetypal, right? So the, this will be the last tangent, Bill. Um, the, the Greeks had three kinds of time. Uh, one of those is Kronos, which is linear time. It's very easy to understand. If you're shooting an arrow, you're going to hunt a deer, right? You're shooting an arrow. Kronos is the time from when you let go of the arrow until the arrow hits a deer. You have Kairos, which is the right time to do something. You could say this is something like the present, but it's also action related. So it's like Kairos is when you can let go of the arrow to hit the deer, right? Or it's like that moment of the hunt. And then Ion, which is um, cyclical mythic time which is the archetypal experience of hunter and prey over time, right? Like Artemis and the, and the deer, things like that. So I 
from my understanding of tarot, uh, there's the thing that you can't account for is is randomness, right? So serendipity, chance, uh, coincidence, uh, magic, whatever you, you know, uh, fate, all of those things live in the gray area of randomness. Shuffling a deck creates opportunities for randomness. So if something was going on, it would go on there. But what I think is going on is the people who create, or, and it's tons and tons of people contributed to tarot decks over the years, and they get refined like mythology. They get refined into these very potent forms, right? That just like if there was something in a tarot deck that says like, "Oh yeah, on on Tuesday, uh, you are going to get hit with a piano," right? Then people would pull that card and be like, "That's never going to happen," and it would never happen because that's a hyper specific thing that's not archetypal, right? Outside of cartoons. Um, but all the things that stay in there are things that are normal inevitable human experiences like at, at some point in your life every single thing in a tarot deck will occur to you you'll be betrayed you'll fail you'll succeed you'll get money you'll lose money you every every single thing will happen to you more than once right it's inevitable they're all archetypal human experiences so i think the combination of randomness right or or, or ser opportunities for serendipity we could say um or synchronicity um archetypally true things and symbols that uh, the way that symbols function it the it allows the unconscious mind to project its symbolic language onto the thing and so your your brain and especially a good tarot reader um can read and parse through that and interpret these archetypally true things in the context of you and that's where the magic comes in is a combination of that like insight or that intuition and the knowledge and the serendipity that makes it really amazing and i think you know as somebody who like i generally because i know tarot has like a bad rap for a lot of people um i'm trying to i'm trying to give you the opportunity if that's something that you've ever thought was interesting but you're freaked out because you think it's like witchcraft or something like that's the uh scientific non um non-magic approach to tarot so i wouldn't let that stop you from it as an intellectual exercise if nothing else i think it's really cool uh, you can obviously take that in a lot of different ways. I do usually tell people like, I don't think it predicts the future or anything like that. But if you like Carl Jung, if you like mythology, it is as sophisticated as any of that stuff. It is so cool. Um, if you were going to do it and you've never done it before, the Rider Waite deck is the gold standard. Uh, that is the de facto. And just even the way that those, the art for those cards was produced is amazing. It's like visionary art that just, catches all these things there's like julius caesar's in the deck and like alexander the great and all these recurring mythological themes so actually um, and it stems from a like an old italian card uh game uh, from what i was told by a friend of mine yeah it's theoretically goes back as far as egypt some people say yeah. but there's yeah. people also love to say a lot of esoterica comes from egypt and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't uh, as i'm sure you're familiar from what mm -hmm. i <laughs> so, can i uh, ask a question that's sort of a redirect from what chris asked you mm. Tell us about the most magical experience you've ever had so far. Let me think. It's a good question. Because I'm trying to think. <laughs> I, I know. I'm thinking about that, too. Yeah. I, I picked up on it, Chris. I'm like, wow, what would that be for me? I'm trying to think absolute, like, serendipitous occurrence. Hmm. Because serendipity, yeah, go. I can see. I got, I got this. Just yeah, happened yeah. last week, so this may not right. be the most of all time. But I was. This was awesome, right? 
So Friday, it's Friday night, it's this time last week, thereabouts. And I'm like texting people I'm like, Hey, I'm trying to do something tonight. Nobody's responded. So I like went to the store and I was going to make fajitas. I got stuff for fajitas. I come home, cook. I'm sitting there. I'm like halfway through eating my fajitas. And, um, my buddy calls me. He's like, Hey, we're going to go out. We're going to go talk to chicks. I was like, all right. While he's calling me, um, that's how he talks, by the way. He does. That's anyway. Uh, yeah. good guy. But somebody texts me mid call who I had posted in one of the group chats that I'm in. And he was like, Hey, we're have, there's a white elephant Christmas party. You should come. I was like, I told him that. He was like, Oh, you should go with him. I was like, okay, cool. Cause I was not, that wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. Right. Um, so I go and I get in an Uber and this guy in the Uber starts telling me the most, well, that wasn't the first thing that happened. I get in the Uber. There's like a 55 year old guy wearing like a, a paper boy cap. He's playing trance music. I was like, Oh, this is, we're off to cool. This is awesome. I used to make trance a long time ago. And I was like, Nice. You have a great taste of music. He's like, oh, thanks. My daughter made me this playlist, but I got her into it when she was a kid. I was like, oh, you're, you're super cool. We're going to have a good time. It's a long, long Uber, right? So he starts telling me about his daughter and he's like, yeah, I have three daughters. I'm gonna, about to have four. I was like, he's like quite old. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's like, oh yeah, I'm adopting uh, an adult woman, <laughs> like a 25 year old. I was like, what? So he's telling me the story and He's like, yeah, her dad was a terrible person and he died when she was 14. And then her mom died with, like a couple of years ago. And she was always close to the family. And, you know, his wife had died. And so it's just been him and the girls. And so she's like a criminal justice um, lawyer or something. And she discovers that you can do adult adoptions, right? And it's like a super rare thing, but you could do it. So there's like, he, there, she found this story about a guy who, adopted his gardener because his kids were assholes and he thought that they were going to take him out of the will. So he just adopted his gardener as his son. Right. So anyway, so I'm like, I'm enraptured by the story. Right. He's like, Oh yeah. So she asked him to rename, like he wanted to take, or she wanted to take his last name, but he also, uh, she, she asked him to change her middle name. Right. And I was just like, I was like tearing up in the back of the super. Right. So like Christmas time, I was like, this is beautiful. And so, the his uh, he her new name was uh her her name is um Brittany Lauren, I want to say is what the, her name became. Um yeah, I'm sorry I'm forgetting this part because this is critical to the story. So so anyway, he tells me the story is great. I had a great Uber. I go to this party. I just get in there. I'm talking to my buddy who invited me. And these two girls walk in, right? And introduce, they know him. Like, hi. And the order that they introduced me, uh, in, introduced themselves to me, is the same name as the the girl in the Uber, which is like Dan, Danny Lauren. That was it. It's Danny and Lauren. So somebody's like, hi, I'm Danny. Hi, I'm Lauren. I was like, no way. What are the odds of that? Right. I was like, I was like about to not go out. I last second, last second before I committed to other plans, I get invited to a different party. I happen to get in the Uber with this guy who happens to tell me the story. And then I meet two people who are named the same thing as the girl in the story. And then they invited me to a different party uh, the next night. So I went to that too. And that was great. And I met a bunch of other people. So just insane. That was like batting way above chance there is so. there a, is there a requirement to make any meaning out of this or can you just allow it to be it was just awesome that was just yeah i didn't there's no like grand takeaway i was just like 
that was not that was not chance, right? And that's for the both of these events, by the way, were the best things I've done this month. They were just like in Austin, you have these parties where it's like a normal party, but then people do like gratitude things at the party. So they were both like that, where they like stop the party, like, hey, thank you everyone for coming. I want to take a moment so we could all reflect on gratitude and stuff. It was like, oh, this is the coolest. You know, I'm here for that. Um, so no, I don't know. No great takeaway. I just thought that was the coolest thing that happened. <laughs> like this. Well, year. I mean, but, but there is a great takeaway. I, I, it was a trick question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got me. <laughs> no, you you did it perfectly because what the point that you made so brilliantly is that there is no takeaway. This isn't the point, right? It's not about what you think. Mm, mm. <laughs> summarize it all, right? right. You have got to be in the space. That was and it. The more we learn, the less we know anyway, right? Like the more information we gather, the more we realize there's so much and it's just, it's an, uh, it's, it's endless. And to just come back to this place of that childlike wonder, you know, like the kids, they really do get it. I'm telling you, like I, I take a lot of my, you know, uh, I, I get, I get ad not advice. I just watch them live and I'm like, I'll, I'll take some of that. You guys have, you're tapping into, and you know, they had, they do those studies, right. Where every child is basically genius level intellect up until the end of high school. And then that's gone, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I'm like, great, like let's, let's take in that childlike wonder and that when you're on some psychedelics, that's similar feelings that you have of just like, wow. And what were Steve jobs last words? Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 Those are the last things he said. And I, and I believe it because this is an incredible, miraculous, beautiful reality that we're in. And we're just trying to make some kind of sense of it, you know, just, just for fun. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, we could just play more, right? Yeah. You know, playing life. It's a game. I personally feel like it's, I have, um, I was going to mention this earlier, but it wasn't, there wasn't a good moment to do it, but I have three metaphors for life that are tied to, I have a three value system for thinking about stuff, which is basically the values are truth, will, and love. Truth is like the um, capital T truth or Aletheia, which is like comprehensive, like unhidden truth. Will and love would be like masculine, feminine, you know, uh, so Thelema and Agape, right? Um, and I have three metaphors for life, which is truth is a dance. Will is a game. Sorry. Truth is a song. Uh, will is a game. Love is a dance. So if you think about all of these things are part of it, you'd like add the masculine is it's a game. You could say it's a contest, but that's more that adds a little edge to it, but it's a game. Yeah. There's other people playing. You want to win the game. Sometimes you play the game and there's no winning. Sometimes there are games you have to play to win, right? Uh, you ideally like to pull a Peterson. You want to ideally keep getting invited to keep playing the game. Right. Yeah. So don't play in a way that prevents you from playing the game in the future. Um, the dance love is about dealing with the other. Right. And it's fluid. There's a leader, there's a follower. Sometimes it switches. It's very dynamic. And the song is like when you're born, you're born in a, in a concert hall, like a symphony orchestra room. Right. And you grow up hearing the song. Everyone's playing the song. Some people are playing better than others, but there's an ongoing song. It started before you were born. It will continue after you're dead. When you're a kid, you learn to play your instrument, right? Yeah, at this point, you're just like following instructions, trying to do it right. At some point, you're playing along, right? At some point, maybe you get to solo or something. And at some point, if you're really good, you maybe get to lead the orchestra, right? And it's through that, like, it's not about being the best musician. It's about being able to be a great musician and also understand the whole song completely so it's holistic right there's all these different pieces 
And maybe you like are great at violin. You're never going to learn the oboe or something, right? But a conductor may not know how to play all the instruments so they can conduct and they can bring everyone together on the same page. And so in that way, truth is this encompassing, like holistic, cumulative sort of thing. And that was, that made me think of, right? Is like you play music, right? Dancing is a lot like play, uh, but it's also all these things are like a game and all of these things are like a song and they're all kind of related, you know? Yeah. You know, these are the avatars we're playing in the game, you know, mm. Garrett, Bill and Chris, pretty cool avatars. Gotta say, I, I dig them. I dig them. And uh, honestly, guys, this has been amazing. I got to run anyway soon. I'm sure we all got to have to go our separate ways here, but uh, I'll, I'll say on my behalf here, Garrett, thank you so much for spontaneously joining us on this epic conversation today it really feels like we are time traveling a bit because this feels like although it's clearly virtual i feel like we're back in ancient greece having one of those awesome philosophical conversations you know which i feel like was a what we're doing right now is probably like an everyday thing back then and maybe we should bring that back i like this this was really fun thanks guys for having me today i uh this was really nice uh, treat for me i love it Thank you for having me. I, yeah, this is a wonderful surprise. I had um, my lunch meeting that I was supposed to go to right now got canceled. It was like, oh, I got two hours left. Hey. So this is very fortuitous. Very yeah, I love it. I'm, well, Bill, I'm just reeling right you. now because uh, of the awesome power of what you said and how relevant and missing it is for so much of the world. And if anybody who's lasted this long in this podcast Wants to know more, we'll publish Garrett's information. You can contact him directly. So you'll get like a, a phone call or something, maybe, depending upon which <laughs> Email, of our 15 whatever. listeners, you know, actually make it to the end. <laughs> I'm here for it. I um if if you are uh, if you go to my website, there's a button where you can schedule a call with me for free. So if you want to talk about this at all, I'm happy to do it. Like we'll no, I'm not gonna sell you there. anything. I just want to chat. So yeah. That's that's what we need more of. You're right, Chris. And uh, Garrett, thanks for sparking this for us today and just I really, I, I feel real filled up right now. Thank mm. you, man. Me too. Yeah. yeah. It's rolling into the weekend perfectly. This is a great way to start, Isn't start the evening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone also who's tuning in right now, watching and uh, listening. Thank you so much for uh, taking your time. Like again, to stay with us through this uh, light, nice, long, but organic flowing conversation today. And we're sending you a lot of love when you're listening to this. Uh, any beings who are tuning in, we love you. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm going to extend that, extend that to you guys. Bill, Garrett, thank you so much, guys, for being here. Much love to you. And it's uh, so nice to be around these you know, embodied, awesome, loving masculines. So it's a real treat, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Aho, right. everybody. Aho. Aho. <laughs>